Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are here to put our trust not in the princes of this world, in whom there can be no salvation, but in you, the God of Jacob. We are here because we seek the immense and weighty blessing of receiving help and hope from you, our mighty and awesome Lord. We ask that you would lead us into worship this morning in King Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship comes from Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Uh, follow along with me. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then the, lame shall, then the lame man shall leap like a deer. And the of the sing for joy. Lift up your hearts. As I said in the announcements, uh, we are about to embark upon a journey of reading through the entire Bible in less than nine months. The daily bread, this daily bread, will nourish our souls as we seek what pleases the Lord by feasting on his holy word. Never forget that his word is a feast. Man does not live by bread alone, on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How is it that we are able to taste and see that the Lord is good? By feasting on his word, the word he has given us, and by feasting daily. Immediately following the creation of man in Genesis 2, Immediately upon the creation of man from the dust of the earth, we read this in Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made, this, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eyes, to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So this garden, situated on the mountain of the Lord, was perfect and was filled with trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. God was providing for every need of his new creation, man. He was feeding him. He was walking with him in the cool of the day. From this mountaintop garden flowed a river which sent its life-giving waters to these life-giving trees before it divided into four life-giving rivers, which then went forth to water all the earth, spreading life wherever they flowed. This is how it was in the beginning, and it was perfect. Adam, in his sin, destroyed the perfection of this created world. Because of this failure, this rebellion of the first Adam, the rest of the word of God... The rest of the word of God tells the same story in a multitude of ways of Jesus, the second Adam, coming to make all things new and to set aright the failure 
of the first Adam. If we faithfully work our way through the first book in Genesis until the end, we will come to the last chapter of the last book, and we will read the following words. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, beginning and end. By the end, there's a new garden, a new river, a new tree. Instead of a garden with just one man and one woman, this new garden is now a garden city filled with those who have the name of Jesus written on their foreheads, a great multitude. A garden city that consists, that contains a new and better river of life, a new and better tree of of life whose fruit feeds her people and whose leaves heal the nations. A new garden city where the curse has been destroyed and what remains are nations healed, the throne of God in our midst, and the people of God reigning with him before his face forever and ever. This is where we, we in all of Christendom are going, and it should fill us with glorious hope. However, if we're not breathing the clear mountain air of God's word, we will find our minds and hearts bowed down with the cares of this world and the resultant murkiness of life apart from him. We must guard against this by running daily to the word. Hearing this, we are reminded of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able... Will you please kneel? Scripture says in Psalm 147, verses 2 and 3, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. The word of the Lord in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which, their, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creatures that move with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And, they were, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I think Joe said stand up for the sermon. I don't know. <laughs> well, good morning, Christ Covenant. It's a privilege to be here, and, and welcome to our visitors who are here as well. The, uh, the passage was rather long this morning. Uh, goes into chapter 2, verse 3, and um, I'm not going to deal with all of it today. You notice in the bulletin it says a part one, so I've, I've afforded myself a little liberty to, to not rush through a rather... Um, large portion of scripture and a portion of scripture that I would submit to you is, is as essential as any por portion of scripture 
as we um, as we understand, you know, you guys have heard me say it before that if we are believers in Christ and if we are in this place today, that we are all theologians. So as we theologians gather, and as we begin to embark on uh, this this path uh, through the book of Genesis, through the book of Origins, it's very vital for us to understand where we're where we're starting and where we're going. Um, I'm going to make a re- I'm going to make an example of something that most of the young folks won't be aware of. But um, in the world, there, uh, when I was a younger po- younger person, actually not that many years ago, uh, there's this thing called <laughs> called a map. And I know when I was a when I was a soldier in the military, uh, one of the key things, one of the key uh, tasks that we needed to have proficiency in was land navigation. We needed to be able to know where we were. That was very important, but we also needed to know where we were going and be able to map that route as to how we were going to get there. So as we think about, as we think about embarking on this uh, look at Genesis, we want to know where we're starting. We want to know where we're at, and that's why we're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 1. It's, it's, it's important and it's vital. But just as an example, if you were to shoot an azimuth, let's say you want to go 90 degrees due east. Um, you know, you look at your map, and if you're going to use your map and then use a magnetic compass as well, what you're going to do is you're going to need to account for magnetic north versus true north and then what the north is on the map and all this, so you account for this with using the legend and the declination and all that. You figure it out. But if you're, if you're one degree off, if you, if you want to go 90 degrees and you're either 89 or 91 degrees, when you go, when you go 100 yards, you're going to be 5 feet from your target. Now, if your target's only 100 yards or 100 meters, it's not, a, not too big a deal uh, unless you're looking for an ant or something. But 5 feet, we can, we can kind of manage. But you see, you see what my, my point's going to be. As we go one mile, we're going to miss our target by 92 feet. If we're one degree off, and degrees are not, you know, it's 360 degrees, and one degree off, we're going to be 92 feet off after a mile. If we start in Washington, D.C., for whatever reason we would want to, if we want to circumnavigate the globe all the way around Earth and return to Washington, D.C., and we're strictly uh, navigating by our course, our azimuth, if you will, if we're one degree off, we're going to miss... We're going to miss Washington, D.C. by 435 miles. So you kind of, I don't want to belabor this, I already have, I think. But you see the point, that we want to know where we're starting, and it's so vital, and it has massive importance for us. The English title Genesis comes from the Greek translation of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books, which means origin. And that's that's from the Greek. It's it's a very apt title, because Genesis is all about origins. Uh, it's about the origin of the world. And it's about the origin of human, the human race. About the origin of sin. And it's about the origin of the Jewish people as well. Traditionally, Moses is seen as the author of Genesis. As well as the rest of the Pentateuch. So, Moses is the author. So, he wasn't there when... God said, let there be light. He wasn't there when God formed the firmament firmament and all that. 
But yet it was revealed to Moses, and, and Moses wrote about it. And so why, why do we think that it was important for the nation of Israel to be privy to the creation account? Why is it important for us to be privy to the, the creation account? As we look at the book of origins, as we realize very quickly that Genesis is essential um, for us to understand many of the doctrines of our faith. Um, I, I was commenting to Kay on the way over to the uh, service this morning that we, we are blessed, certainly, to be members of this church, but, but it's, it's also a blessing to know that um, even, even our folks who are young, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on these Lord's Days to very mature people, people who read their Bible, people who are familiar with, with the narrative and what's going on here. That's a blessing. Um, you know, so when we, when we consider the different doctrines um, of our faith, of the things that we hold to, of the teachings that we subscribe to, as the, as the doctrines that we defend, we see that the doctrine of the Word of God, for instance, has its origins in Genesis. We're going to see that, and that's going to be imperative, and it's going to be very important for us to, to, to plug that in in the back of our mind as we, as we get ready tomorrow to start do, doing this nine-month reading program, okay? Um, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ and the Holy Spirit all have their beginnings and origins in Genesis. We're going to see that as we, as we read through the book of Genesis, as we study and as we meditate on it. Fundamentally, overarching, the, 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 the big thing to understand and to remember about Genesis as we read it is that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Um, he's created all life. And as well, in the back of our minds, as we think about the formation of the earth as we, and the universe and then man being created and all that, we also want to understand that there's a, there's a connection here to the formation of the nation of Israel as well. Moses writing this. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 6 through 9, it says this. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So as we consider creation, we're also gonna, we also want to have in the back of our mind what's going on here and the, the purpose and the reason of why we are privy to what's going on at the beginning, at the, at the, the beginning of time, at the beginning of space, at the beginning of the universe as we, as we know it and as we see it, and we continue to uh, grow in our knowledge of. Um, there's a term that I might use a couple times here. Uh, the term is theocracy, and I just want to let you know that that's a, it's a form of government in which God or a deity is recognized as a supreme civil leader or ruler. The gods or deities' laws interpreted by the ecclesiastical authorities. Okay, So... There are some theocracies on the planet right now. Um, uh, some of them, in the, most of them, in the Middle East. Um, you've heard of Sharia law and those things. Now we're talking about certainly about idols and little g gods, not not the one true living God. But Israel was cre- Israel. God made Israel to be a theocracy. He was to rule them. 
And, and the, the mediation of that ruling was to be by his, his priests. And we know the story and we'll encounter the story of Israel um, eventually demanding to have a king like everybody else has. The God who created Israel is the God who created the universe and everything in it. You know, the implications are really massive here as we consider this. The theocracy is founded by the sovereign God of creation. The law, the customs, the beliefs associated with it are, are in accordance with the plans of creation. So already we're making reference here, even though, uh, you know, when we look at verse 1, it's extremely primitive and it's uninhabitable and all of that. We're already thinking in our mind about God the lawgiver, the creator being the lawgiver, and that's going to have great importance for us as we consider that. As we look through, as we begin to read through the first 11, 11 or 12 chapters of Genesis, it's vital and it's important to keep that in mind. And we think about creation, it's really a theological starting point explaining what kind of God was establishing his theocracy and how powerful his word is. You know, we sing, we sing about these things, and God's word is, is powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it divides things and, and makes things distinct. We see God distinguishing things in, in his creation. We see God naming things. You know, there are so many stars in the sky that it would take a human being only about an hour to run out of names for these things. But there are, there are billions of galaxies that contain each billions of stars, and God names them all. We've got to call them C-3PO or whatever we do because we just run out, run out of names, but God doesn't. His immensity, his majesty, his... His, uh, just the power and sovereignty of his word and all that just permeates us and it's, and it's going to envelop us. So this, this reading exercise isn't an exercise, it's a blessing and it's a privilege. And we're going to embrace it. And we're going to enjoy it. And we're going to take comfort in knowing as I, as I read mine and, and try to find the time, quote unquote, the time in my busy day to, to read five chapters out of the Bible, I, I know that Ezra's going to be reading his Bible and Sarah and Aaron and, and, and Kirby and, and everybody else. That's, that's a, there's a comfort in that. Peter, Peter talks about it in his, in his epistle. In numerous ways, we think now, okay, God the lawgiver, the creator God being the lawgiver, there's a lot of rationale that we find in the law in creation by the fact that God does use his powerful and authoritative word. And here's the thing. When Israel received the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, they were receiving the word from the creator who spoke things into existence you know it wasn't just okay I, we're gonna we're gonna kind of make a reference to this this is this is god who said let there be light and it was so let there be light let there be this this thing that we just take for granted and this thing that illuminates and allows us to see things and allows us to participate and allows us to discern one another all these things all the things that encompass light God spoke it into his existence. So when Israel, when Israel heard from the prophets, thus saith the Lord, it, there, was, there was a import there. There was a, a magnificent and ma uh, huge import when that word and that term was used. And it should be for us too. You know, the, these Bibles aren't, they're, they're not just 
books to study. They're, they're, they're the Word of God, the very Word of God. And it's a blessing to be, I know in this church, that's what we believe. And that's what we know. So as we kind of get further along in this thing today, we're going to see the importance of not just going, well, creation, evolution, it's not that big a deal. We don't need to sweat it. You know what? I know what's right, and I'm just going to truck on and and do my thing. Wrong. Okay. Um, Should should Israel not heed the powerful and authoritative word of God? Should we not heed the authoritative and powerful word of God? Well, you know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. You know, the passage that, we, that I read to you, I know it was rather long, but it does, it does reveal the pattern of redemption as well. So now we're, talking, now we're talking about, you know, this lump of planet here. But we see the pattern of God in taking this useless piece of territory that he created. It was not eternal. There was a time when it didn't exist. And we see God take that and turn it from a waste and a void into a marvelous creation at rest, at blessed and sanctified by God. This creation narrative traces how God transformed the chaos into cosmos, turned darkness into light and altered that which was unprofitable to that which was holy and worth blessing. The pattern of God's redemptive plan begins to unfold right away in Genesis. We're going to see that. In fact, in chapter 3, for sure, we see the fall, but we also, we also see this thing called the Proto-Evangelion, the gospel, first, first illustrated and first highlighted in creation, but as well in chapter 3 of Genesis. In verse 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning denotes a starting point in time and history. And you know, it's, uh, believe me, I've been dealing with this for a while, uh, a, few, a few minutes. And it's really something to try to sit back and just consider that God has given us a capacity and he's given us a a frame of reference to use that we don't think about very often unless you know you're playing a football game and there's clocks winding down or whatever but when you think about time and the fact that there was a i don't even know how to say it i don't even know if i'm correct in saying it this way there was a time when there was no time because i my feeble finite brain cannot think of a way to describe before genesis 1 in the beginning God. I don't know how to do that. And as you begin to read and study the word of God in Genesis, you will immediately begin to encounter competing worldviews regarding cosmology. Cosmology is just the study of the origin and structure, structure of the universe. Listen, we're not even going to get right out of the gate. We're not even going to get out of verse 1 before you're going to be challenged, before the world system is going to challenge you. Like I say all the time, there's one correct worldview, and then there's all this myriad of other worldviews that are not correct, and you're going to be challenged by it. I mean, it's not hard to just see blatant and overt challenges. So when we talk about time and history starting here in Genesis 1, uh, 
I came across a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. He taught that he just taught the erroneous idea of eternal recurrence, a concept that says time has no starting or ending point. Now, <laughs> if you want to look cool, if you want to be in the cover Esquire, whatever the, the whatsoever in vogue today, and you, I subscribe to what Nietzsche said. This this notion that. Um, what is it called? Eternal recurrence. It sounds hip. It sounds cool. It sounds intellectual. It sounds all that. And you know what? The people that you really don't need to, to impress are going to be impressed by you. You're going to be challenged by it. And then you know what? Uh, I, I'm a bit opinionated this morning from the pulpit, but you know that's that's what that's what we prepare our youngsters here for. These, these young soldiers, when they go out, we're preparing them so they don't get inculcated and indoctrinated by something like this from Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, you're one of those people. You believe that in six days everything just happened, huh? You know, there's a lot of cosmologies out there that are not uh, similar to ours that do believe that there was a beginning in history, but the question all, always arises what, by what means and, and how. You know, how did, it, how did it start, and who started it? Was there, was there a start? The Bible requires us to believe that God created things ex nihilo. We've heard that term uh, the last time I was up here, which, me, which this is a Latin phrase that means out of nothing or from nothing, that God created everything out of nothing. When we say that there was nothing before God created, you know, we want to be careful you know, these things can get flipped on us uh, that the word nothing in and of itself does, can, can that, you know, people can do an end around on us and, and, and get us to admit that nothing actually implies that there's something there. And I don't mean to be up here and confuse anybody, but, you know, we, we want to we know the truth and we, we can tell the counterfeit, not by studying five million different counterfeits, but by knowing the truth, knowing, knowing the one true thing. The most common philosophy adhered to by unbelievers today is probably, I don't know, this is anecdotal, is probably materialism, uh, which denies the existence of God, by the way. Um, materialism would say that the material universe is all that there is. You're going to encounter people who are going to maintain that, and they're going to sound very... Uh, they're going to sound very erudite and very, very intellectual, and and their 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 reasoning and all that's going to sound very compelling. Don't be duped by it. The biblical account of creation also rules out this other theory or notion called dualism, and that's the idea that not only did God exist, has God existed, always existed, but there's also this. Uh, the material, the material has always existed as well. There's been this kind of parallel thing going along, and then God just tapped into it and began to, began to do something with it. That's dualism, and the bottom line is we know that God did not use any pre-existing materials. The language of the Hebrew language of creation is going to demonstrate that to us. Psalm 33, verses six and then verse nine says, "By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth." all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And of course, our, a beloved universal truth that we have indelibly marked on us in John chapter 1 and 1 through 3, it says, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The fact that God created the, the universe ex nihilo, it positively means that the universe has a meaning and has a purpose. And we, we want to start thinking, thinking along these lines all, all the time. That because God created it out of nothing, because he spoke it into existence, because, because he took a formless void and he, in, in a, in a, in a log, to us, a logical and fashion and deliberate fashion, that he has a purpose for this universe. He has a purpose for the inhabitants of the, the creatures, and he has a purpose for us. That's a, that's a positive thing that comes out of here. The practical application here, and, and you know, we want to walk away with application in our lives on every Lord's Day from whoever happens to be standing up here. The practical application is as we contemplate creation, as we understand creation, as we, as we, we embrace it in the way the Bible speaks about it, the application is soli deo gloria, to God be the glory. That's the preeminent thing. That is, that is the all thing. You know, I hate, I don't hate to tell you this, but the Bible is about God. It's about our God. And it's about a God, and, and I, you know, having done the quote-unquote introduction to, all, to this thing a couple, three weeks ago, I, uh, there was times in, in the composition of the sermon I was like, man, I want to say something about this but you know I did talk about it and then I know I know one person anyway who uh, took good notes on that sermon my little my little sister Liesel here but for God's glory and then then you think about the creation and here's here's the other thing as we as we take the application of this with us to God be the glory that also that we enjoy the creation that we see God has created it he, he's the one, in First Timothy 6, 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertain riches, uncertainty of riches, rather, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Whenever creation, whenever creation brings us joy, we should be giving God thanks. And most of my brothers and sisters that I know, uh, that I worship with, that I sing with, that I, do, that I fellowship with, do do give God thanks and praise. Kay and I were blessed last week to go uh, down to Sun River, Oregon, and, and play some golf, play a kid's game as adults. While many of you all were up here toiling and maybe studying or doing whatever, you, doing whatever you're doing. But here's the thing. There was a time in my life when I did that, but I wasn't a Christian. And I just took it for granted. I had, I had no appreciation other than uh, when I hit a good shot or when I hit a bad shot. But I'm going to tell you what, everything changed. In that moment of justification and then as the sanctification sets in and as we grow, as God separates us and as he grows us, it's a whole different ball game. That we can't even, we can't even, we can't even get in a car to go over to, the, to this golf course without, sit, without kneeling and thanking God for, for the blessing that he has provided. That there's this portion of earth that's set aside, we can just go out and play a, play a goofy game. But it's a blessing, and it matters, and it's important. Whenever you, can, whenever you meet somebody at Fiddler's Coffee or whenever, whenever you get in a car 
and drive 10 miles home and you don't have to walk? That's God. It's always God. And you know, we, we, we should be almost exhausted at the end of every day just from the sheer, the sheer energy of worshiping this creator God in our life. Now, as we look at, in the beginning, God, uh, the term for God used here is Elohim, and I spoke about that a couple, three weeks ago. Um, Elohim is a, it's a term that denotes a plurality, so it, doesn't, it isn't a proof text for the Trinity, although it does contribute to our understanding of the Trinity as we read the Bible, okay? The, it's a term for deity, and plural in form, the verb create now is a singular one, so you've got this this word that denotes plurality, but the, but the referent is a single one. So it, it's, it talks about as God being one. And the book of Genesis is consistently monotheistic in its, in its, in its uh, consideration of God as God has revealed himself to us. Elohim by itself is simply the Hebrew common noun used to refer to God in an honorific way. Um, and in the Bible, sometimes you will see Elohim, it refers to plural little g gods, okay, as uh, in you shall have no other little g gods before me in Deuteronomy 5. And other times it refers to a singular big g god as in in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we've got this term, and as you, as you read, as you do this reading plan, uh, don't, don't be reluctant to stop in the middle of something and, and, and do a word study or something. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about um, the nomenclature and the words that, that are being used in our scripture. That they, they, they are just packed with meaning, and the context drives everything for us. We, we already know that. Um, the regular, I have a note here, the regular appearance of Elohim in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, rather than Yahweh, is due to the theological emphasis of the section here that we're looking at. Creation extols God's transcendence and the power of his spoken word. Thus, Elohim is preferred, okay? Yahweh is a proper noun now, okay? The, it's the personal name of the God of Israel is reserved for the true and living God alone, Yahweh. I am. And then when we look at created, again, another word, and I, and I ended up, doing a few word studies here and, and glad to do them, enjoyed doing them. Um, the word for create used here is bere, it's B-A-R-A with a long A's. Um, bere, when it's used in the Bible, indicates that the subject is always God. It conveys the idea of a special activity accomplished only by deity that results in newness or renewal, and it always refers to the product created, not of the substance of which it's made. Again, ex nihilo, out of nothing, is reinforced here by just the use of that one word for, for uh, create. There's another word for create. There's plenty of words. There's a lot of words for create or renew and all that. The other one used in Genesis is asa, A-S-A-H, um, where the making of something involves the use of materials. We see it in Genesis 3, it says that 21, and the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, we know, we know the story behind that, and if you, if you guys, I hope you come back to stick with me at least through Genesis 3, if you can, um, uh, that we'll talk about that. It's, it's just a fascinating um, 
thing to consider about God providing these garments for um, Adam and Eve. It doesn't al always necessarily mean a new thing. For instance, in Psalm 51:10, again a sermon from a few uh, a couple months ago now, in the, in the in 51:10 Alpha it says, "Create or bere in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart." And then it goes on to say in 51 verse 10, "And renew a right spirit within me." That that word is hadas. Okay, so another Hebrew word. So create bere in me a new heart, okay, renew it, and, and renew a right spirit in me as well. Um, Beira, Beire has a, has a nuance of restoration and renewal as well as just straight up uh, unadulterated creation. In verse 2 it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, you know, from verse 2, we see as far as the, this rock, rock that we're on, it, we see that something's pretty wrong here. We see something drastically wrong. Um, Calvin referred, John Calvin referred to the earth as described in Genesis 1 as a, a shapeless chaos. Um, and it certainly indicates and is evident that it lacks order and it lacks um, context. And then when we think about the earth form and void and darkness, we, we typically, you know, there's been a lot of sermons preached on darkness in the Bible and the fact that it represents evil or maybe it represent the place of the dead or the lack of being able to, to live and thrive and all that, but that's not the case here. It's more indicating the absence of light in verse 2 here. Um, and, of course, the waters, the deep in the waters is often portrayed as a threat to life to the people of God as well. Um, here, Genesis identifies the waters only, what, only in what they are, and that is a created thing that God made, this, this deep and these waters and all of that. After the first two clauses uh, kind of give us a bit of an ominous vibe here on the, what, what, what's been kind of what's here, the, the third clause for us, uh, the, the Spirit of God, God hovering over the face of the waters, the, the Spirit of God mayim hovering, it gives, us, it gives us a positive thought now. The arena now is not this abyss, not this, this kind of a, something we may think of as a threat, but rather it's water. And we know how vital and important water is. And the, 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 the fact that the activity belongs to the Spirit of God. It tells us that there is a creative force and it's God who has the creative force and the movement to cause things to change. And that's, I think that's really important. It's not, uh, some people will talk about this particular uh, portion, this third clause in verse 2 as, as, as a wind or just some kind of awesome wind but the context doesn't, it, it will not tolerate that, that interpretation, at least in my view, okay? Um, and so I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not going to go any further in, in Genesis this morning, okay? Um, but I do want to, I want to talk just briefly, very briefly, um, about some interpretations or some views, rather, of creation, Okay? And um, 
I'm not going to talk about evolution. You can, uh, I'm not going to talk about it. That's all I'm going to say. But among Bible-believing Christians, there, there's maybe four, three, four, sometimes five primary uh, interpretations of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Some, there's sometimes, like I said, uh, there, there may be five views. I'm going to look at, at four this morning. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when we eventually know fully, we will all be in, we will all be in complete agreement. When we get to that time when it, we all know fully, okay? And I wrote a statement down, but actually it, it's a bit of a prayer maybe, and I'm just going to read what I wrote down here. It says, Until that day, may we worship our Creator together and graciously discuss and debate our differences without unnecessarily dividing over them okay now i'm not i i don't want to i don't want to run down that rabbit trail like i like to do but um you know there are there can be differences in how we see this okay there can be um and differences that don't that aren't a matter of fellowship you know young earth old earth all these other things okay gap theory some of these other things um, when I was a younger Christian, I know I was one of those guys that you want to put in a cage because I just like to go find people who disagreed with me and I like to talk to them about it. And, you know, uh, I praise God constantly that he is, and my wife will attest to this, has, he's calmed me down that um, that's certainly not the way to to be gracious and, and charitable and all of that. So, I mean, um, sometimes I feel like, you know, when you cook spaghetti, sometimes you'll pull a noodle out and you throw it up against the wall to see it stick, and then you know it's ready. Well, I felt like the Holy Spirit did a lot of throwing with me, and I'm starting to finally at least adhere to the wall a little bit before I slide down. So, anyway. And as I kind of cite these three things, and they're going to be brief, I'm just going to do touchdowns. I'm not going to really elaborate on them on it. I, I, I'm, I'm imag- my hope is, is that everybody at the end of the sermon here will agree with what I think, okay? So, anyway. The first view is called, is called historic creationism. And I will say this, too, before we get into there. I, I, I subscribe to one of these views, and, and I suspect, again, another anecdotal comment, I suspect that I'm probably in the minority uh, in certain groups. Maybe this one or maybe not, but anyway. Uh, historic creationism. And I want to stick to my notes here, because uh, I really in Anyway, what God created in the first verse existed for an undefined period of time, uh, which could be anywhere from a moment to billions of years, before God began the work of preparing the uninhabitable land for the habitation of mankind. Okay, so the, the formation of the void and the waste and the deep and the abyss and all that is, is indeterminate. The creation of Adam and Eve occurred in the... And, and creation occurred in the six literal 24-hour days of Genesis 1 as echoed in Exodus 20, verse 11. I'm going to read that because it will come up a couple of times. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. This is Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now this 
this view leaves open the possibility of an old earth, okay? Um, and it does have some biblical difficulty since the sun and moon are created on day four rather than before the story actually begins. I, uh, I'm going to deal with that uh, in two weeks when I'm back up here. Um, the, the second view is called young earth creationism. And in this view, God created the entire universe, including Adam and Eve, in six literal 24-hour days. So this view would see the earth as less than 10,000 years old. Um, this view interprets the data of science in terms of inspired scripture and refuses to compromise God's revelation and teaching about the date and divine methods of creation with naturalistic scientific theories. Okay. I got these from a source that's reliable, but I, I injected some things in here. Um, it does have some biblical difficulties, such as the creation of the sun and moon on day four, while the evening and morning on the first three days and all of that. So we, we can deal with that, and we will deal with that, okay? Um, view three is an old earth creation or intelligent design where no evolution is involved. The days of Genesis 1 are analogies of God's work days, setting a pattern for our rhythm of work and rest. Uh, they're understood in the sense of when, when you might hear and you will hear, see in the Bible, it says in, in that day or in the day or whatever, i.e., uh, let's see, Isaiah 11, verse 10, 11, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand on a, as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, in verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend his hand. So we see the, that word day used a cert, certain way. Um, the days are broadly consecutive periods of unspecified length. And the biblical difficulties that the days have evenings and mornings, and it's difficult to reconcile that. In that there was evening and morning, and when you have, an, when you have a day that is pro, as prolonged as you need it to be to figure things out, um, you're going to have an issue there. You're going to have to somehow reconcile that uh, in your reasoning, okay? And the fourth view is the literary framework view. And in this view, Genesis 1 and 2 are meant to be read as figurative framework, explaining creation in a topical and certainly not a sequential order. Um, the six days of creation in Genesis 1 are also to be interpreted metaphorically, not as literal 24-hour literal days. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of the literary framework view here. Um, on any of these, these views, and there's actually more, I mean, they, they seem to just breed, breed new views. Um, there's a lot of information out there for you to get. Uh, just pay attention to where you're getting it from, I guess. You know, but speaking about the literary framework view, you know, God, he does speak poetically. He does speak in different manners. Um, but even when the Bible uses figurative language, it's conveying a literal truth. We need to, we need to understand that and kind of hold on to that as well. Um, this fact here that it does convey a literal truth weakens the figurative view in my, in my view. And then uh, there's another view I just wrote out. There's this thing called evolutionary creation. Um, I'm not even going to talk about it because I don't believe it's valid. And I guess I have some... A bit of license if I'm up here. Um, this may be my last sermon, right, Luke? I don't know. <laughs> like Leonard Ravenhill says, I preached at a lot of churches one time. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly and, and sincerely, I'm happy to have a conversation uh, with anyone on any of these views, but with the understanding that I'm not, one, I'm not an expert, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a scholar. 
but just like all you guys, I am a theologian. So um, I promise uh, if you come talk to me, I won't need to be put in a cage. We, we can have a good conversation about it. You know, as I was thinking about how just to wrap this up, I, I wanted to say I, I refuse to adopt any notion or view that detracts from the awesome sovereignty of God and that denies him the glory that he is due. I trust God in what he says in his word, that it's precise and it's accurate and it's true. You know, I think of I, I, when I was writing this statement, um, I, I thought of Isaiah 55:11. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. You know, again, God uses many literary styles. We'll see many literary styles in the Bible, literal, historical, metaphorical, irony, allegory, poetic, parables, etc. But again, they, these, these styles convey a literal truth. You know, and just my final point is I have, I've encountered many Christians um, who refuse to allow any room for science in their in their worldview, and you know I, don't, I thought about it quite a bit. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think it may be because uh, there's been a lot of violence done to science. Okay, um, and science and what it should stand for, I think, has to a large again, in my opinion, um, based on my many years, many decades on this planet has to a large extent been hijacked by the enemies of God. Um, when you think about it, we should all, we should all be scientists. We should. What science is about, and, 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 I would, and I've said this for years to people, you know, God is not opposed to truth. And there, there is truth in, in science. There's truth in mathematics. You know, uh, 5 plus 2 isn't, the result of 5 plus 2 is not the result of the consensus of the group that you're in. Everybody knows 5 plus 2 is 8. <laughs> oh, man, I got some, the head snapped up. Okay, good. I'm sorry. We know it's 6, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you see, what I'm, you see what I'm saying? You know, it's the creator who established the laws of science and nature, thermodynamics, gravity, buoyancy, all of these things. God established those, those laws. And he gave us the capacity and, and the reasoning to discern them and to evaluate them and to, and to see the application of them. But we also know that God isn't constrained by those laws, the law of buoyancy. Well, I remember, I remember the Savior walking on water. And I've tried it, and for some reason, I sink like something, a lead, a lead balloon. But it's the Creator who gave us the curiosity for knowledge and understanding. And, and you know, yet mankind, the creation, has declared God a myth and some kind of fantasy for those who are fools. And in fact, I would tell you that if you're a Christian and you're a believer, you're going to be considered by the world an absolute fool, an abject fool. It's not hard to find a, a quote. And I, I, the phony atheist Richard Dawkins declares this, and I call him phony atheist because I don't believe in atheism. He says it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, and he says, and dare I say it, even wicked.
That's, that's, that's the pro- one of the prominent, dominant worldviews that we face. So one of, the, one of the things that, one of the applications for us today to consider is that the, God's word is true. And we need, we need to stand on that. And based on the views that I shared with you, maybe you can figure out which view I hold to. But I don't want to, I'm not going to have any view that even remotely detracts from God's sovereignty of the, of the power and authoritative word of God as he issues it. So again, I probably am in the minority perhaps, but that's fine. I'll talk to you about it, but I'm a young earth guy. I believe what the word of God says, and to me that's what it says. Again, I'm not a scholar. I'm not an expert. I don't write commentaries, but I'm going to tell you what. The Holy Spirit indwells me just like he indwells you. And he guides what we think. He guides what we know. He guides what we hold on to. He guides what we embrace. That he is in, a great, he is in us and he guides us and he, and he illuminates these things for us. And I'm okay with that. And if you believe in an older, if you believe in historic creationism, I'm, I'm, I'm good with you, okay? I am. And we should be good with one another. There's way too much, way too much, too many things going on out there at, that costs so much, but the cause is so uh, just secondary. Let's say. Now, there's other things that if you come up and tell me, if you come up and deny the virgin birth, then we then I have a problem with you in, as far as fellowship goes. I don't need to crawl in my cage or anything, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm not going to be in fellowship with you. Things like the 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 the, the deity of Christ full humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union, all these things. There's core, there's core fundamental foundational things that we need to, to stand on and not be knocked off of. But listen, we can't, we can't think about what the Bible says about creation and be apathetic about it, indifferent, or just roll with it and go with the flow as long as it doesn't affect us because I'm going to tell you what it does. And the prominent, dominant thing out there is evolution. And we know that. And each one of these children, if they go to any secular schools, that's going to be taught as fact. It's going to be taught as truth. And I don't have enough faith. I do not contain enough faith in my body to believe evolution. It's utterly ridiculous. And any quote-unquote scientist that wants to talk evolution, I almost salivate to talk to them because it's going to be a good conversation. And it's not because I'm going to win it, but it's going to be because I'm going to watch them stammer and hem and haul because they can't demonstrate what they, what they advocate. But you know what? We can. We can. We know faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. That's what we believe. And we stand on it, and we are Christians, and we will, and we will not be denied, and we will, we will always worship and praise the Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. Thank you for these, these beautiful people here, Lord. I ask that you bless, bless each and every one of them, Lord. Protect us all from the evil one, Lord, and help us stand true and, and be, be solidified and strengthened by your almighty and authoritative word. I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The same God who created the sun, moon, and stars, the oceans, mountains, and majestic planets, that same God also created the grapevine. 
from whose produce we ferment our wine, as well as the wheat seed from which we bake our bread. Our fathers of old ate this bread, this manna, in the wilderness of Sinai. This was bread from heaven. This, bread, uh, this is the bread that Jesus claimed as his own when he, when he stated, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This bread which came down from the sky is similar to the bread that we have before us today. While our bread did not come down from the sky, it did rise up from the ground. Our bread is no less miraculous than the manna our fathers ate of old. It's just more familiar. Which is more amazing, bread falling from heaven or rising from the grave? Our bread, like the gospel, started as a seed first planted in the ground, where it had to die before it could be multiplied and transformed into a life-giving loaf. The bread is the body of Christ. The wine is his blood. Both are perfectly natural, having come about by the natural order of God's creation. And yet, both are particularly supernatural. Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, for, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. This means that in eating this bread, we are a living declaration that we are united to, fed by, and in fact are the body of Christ, which, like the wheat seed, had to die, in order, had to die first in order to rise again in glory. The cup also is the new covenant in Christ's blood, blood that was shed so that we might live. Jesus is calling you to come to his table and to die so that you might live. Follow Jesus to the grave, and he promises to give you back 30, 60, and 100-fold what you have given him. He promises to give you all of himself. So for those of you who are here and are baptized, are united to Christ through baptism, come and welcome to Jesus. The charge is this. As God has made the world, that means we are his created works. We have been created to be his workmanship. As we go out into the world, as we come down from the mountain of worship, let us go, us out, th- go, let us go out knowing that we are going to do the work that God has set out for us to do. He's created everything, including every work that you will do this week. Hear the benediction. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.